Another episode of Trans Regrets Newbie Presents the Bible. I am alone today, I'm speaking again of another instance of Jesus praying in the Bible, this time in John 17. We have a lot of instances of Jesus praying or referring to him praying in the Bible. Not many, however, or not as many, are communal prayers. Um, a lot of his discussion with his father, as you might imagine, is done in private. Perfectly normal. But in this case, he's sitting with his apostles after having explained to them what is happening and what will happen, after giving them uh, this mission to continue to spread the word to continue to handle this grief that they feel with the loss of their friend by allowing others to come into this family of Christ. He prays. He prays for himself. He prays for his apostles. He prays for the church. He makes a point to say he doesn't pray for the world. I think it's important to note that this particular passage gets used a lot in certain contexts that are very divisive, uh, contexts that um, often try to create some sort of hierarchy amongst churches or um, an establishment of some sort of superior Christianity, one that is ordained in this particular prayer by Jesus himself. And who else can ordain a particular sect of Christianity better than Jesus, right? Jesus is the one, but let's take note that Jesus never baptized anyone. Jesus was not interested in separating people that love God. Jesus was not interested in separating the followers of the one true God, of his Father, and allowing sectarian nonsense to splinter what was a beautiful church, uh, albeit deeply flawed because it's run by humans, into uh, 800 different warring sects of Christianity. I don't think that was ever the intention. Now look, you may believe that nothing is an accident, that everything happens for a reason, that every single thing that's happened on earth is exactly the way that God has designed it to happen. That's a different conversation for a different time. But I think the language in here, if you read it, rather than uh, a way to divide and to establish hierarchy, like some of the comment, uh, some of the commentaries that I have read or some of the sermons that I've listened to, um, uh, if you remove that sense of uh, sectarian pride or uh, almost a Christian kind of nationalism, if you remove that, you will actually see a beautiful prayer for all those who open themselves up to and come to love, be it now or in the future, come to love the one true God and worship the one true God. Now, who is the one true God? I don't have time for that today. But I'm going to be going back to the ESV for my reading today. I'll be jumping between a couple of translations, and I'll be introducing the NIV a little bit as well. Um, but I thought that the way that the language was written in the ESV for this particular passage was better. So the header at the outset of the chapter, John 17, says, The High Priestly Prayer. After all, we know Jesus is the highest of high priests, the rabbi of rabbis the teacher of teachers. He is the son of God after all. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, 
the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is just the first five verses. It's insanely dense. It's incredibly dense. I've heard some people say this is the densest, theologically, the densest uh, portion chapter in the Bible. That what Jesus is dealing with here is not as easy as what it appears to be on the surface. Rather, we have layers within layers within layers. And even with the language that John uses to write this portion, we see how that language can be interpreted in many different ways. I think the first thing that someone would notice reading through this a few times is the give and the gave and the given. We have this gift over and over and over again, the gifting, the gifting of faith, the gifting of worship, the gifting of fellowship. The Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is going to be an important theme repeated throughout this chapter, that each one of these things is a gift, the gift that begets the gift. I thought it was really interesting first that Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus has already been glorified in, I think, the way most most of us would think about it here on earth. He has hordes of apostles and followers. He has shaken the crooked core of these power structures. He has started to chip away at the rot inside of the wood and has opened people's eyes to so much of the beauty of what it means to love God. So that glory has already been given, right? But Jesus says, now the time has come to glorify your son so that I may glorify you. In this sense, the word glorify isn't to give glory to in the traditional sense. Rather, it's to lift Jesus up. Physically, it's time to glorify Jesus by way of crucifixion. That's not something that we, most of us, I think, would consider glorifying. To be laid down on a cross and nailed to it, to be tortured, and to be put on display as we die a slow and painful death. But this is how Jesus thought of it. This is how Jesus considered his death. That, sure, he, he turned a ton of people on to a really important change, a sea change in what it meant to be a human that loved God and a, and a human that connected to God because he himself came down to be humbled, to be human, and to live with us. But... It goes deeper than that. He sees it as a glory to be sacrificed. He's not afraid at all. I mean, I think that's incredible. The voice translation has it written out as it normally does in a very theatrical kind of way. It says, Jesus lifting his face to the heavens says, Father, my time has come. Glorify your son and I will bring you great glory because you have given me total authority over humanity. I have come bearing the plentiful gifts of God, and all who receive me will experience everlasting life, a new intimate relationship with you, the one true God, and Jesus the anointed, the one you have sent. I have glorified you on earth and fulfilled the mission you set before me. You'll notice the voice is usually quite a bit different than some of the other translations, but in this case, 
like many very important parts of um, Jesus's dialogue, it's fairly unchanged. This, the phrasing is really what changes. So this notion of glory is, as Jesus sees it, a process by which more can be brought to God. This is how Jesus sees himself dying for us so that by way of the empty tomb, more will see what he did, what he has done, what he's capable of. The miracles he performed on earth apparently weren't enough. Uh, the signs, the, the things that people accuse Jesus of, of uh, doing magic tricks, that wasn't enough for them. Now, whether you see the cross as the way, the evil way that human beings killed Jesus and the, the evil that Jesus overcame in order to be glorified, or whether you see the cross as the plan of God all along, that from the first day, it was going to be the cross, that it was going to be the cross from the from the creation of earth, that that was the plan all along. Regardless of how you see that, I think it's a beautiful way of putting this particular feat, this, this amazing sacrifice to bring glory to God. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And we'll move on to the next section of verses in a second here, but that four and five also bring up some interesting questions. I have, glor I have glorified you on earth. I've done everything that I can, God. Like, Dad, I'm, I did all this. Look at, look at what I've accomplished. Look at this amazing ministry that we've, that we've started here but I'm kind of sick of it on earth. The time is coming, the time has come. I had more glory with you in heaven than I have here. I am more glorified at your right hand in heaven than I am here on earth, being a walking God amongst human beings. This was, this was an exercise in humility for him. This is like Westerners who go on mission trips and um, no longer have access to like a Western plumbing system or a toilet and go, okay, I'm done now. Okay, I'm done. I'm ready to go back to my, my comfortable life. Now, of course, those people can just hop on a plane. What Jesus had to do was die a horrible and painful death. So obviously that comparison breaks down a little bit. But verse 5 it almost made me chuckle, like, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I had all this glory already. I did this to glorify you more, to, to make more worship the one true God. I got into this schlubby human body, came all the way down here with these people. They stink. I'm ready to move on. So Jesus in verse six says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Gave me. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. So God gives Jesus a mission. Before he departs from heaven, he comes to earth. He's, he gives him words specifically. It's almost like a script, like code words that he has to, to bring down to humans to discuss with them what God's plan is. To express that, the time for animal sacrifice is over, that God is interested at this particular juncture 
in the business of forgiveness, that God wants to forgive our sins and he wants to do it once and for all. To allow for this to happen forever and ever. But God has to sacrifice something in order for that to happen. And it just so happens to be this generous, loving, caring guy who also happens to be God. Complicated bit of theology, right? But God hands over these words to Jesus who comes down to earth. Jesus hands those words, gives that faith, this new faith, this renewed sense of connection to God over to his followers. They were of God. They are now of me. You gave them to me, God, is what Jesus said. Now, this is interesting because it implies that those who believed in God and just God, the one true God at that time, have now been given over to Christ. And obviously knowing how the following hundreds and hundreds of years of faith have worked out, that's not necessarily the case. Some were brought over. Some were chosen. But that kind of language is inherently separating. That kind of language is inherently complicating. Because then it says that we know we were the ones that came along. We were the ones that followed. And so everyone else that refused to hear it is forsaken. In the next few verses, Jesus kind of hammers this point a little bit. But I think it's infinitely more complicated than a first reading would allow. Now, verse 8 says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So what he says first is, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not even praying for all of the believers in God. I'm not even praying for all of the people that believe and love and worship the one true God. I am only praying at this time for those that were given over to Jesus during Jesus' time on earth. But then he says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. If all of those who are God's are now Jesus's, then all of those believers in God are brought over into the family of Christ. If that is the language that we are to be reading, so inerrantists, I would love to discuss this with you, because I would love to know how it is that all that are God's are also Jesus's. We'll flip over to the NIV here so we can see. And look at that. It says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. That language switches a little bit, doesn't it? So let's go then to the NRSV. In the Oxford NRSV, it says then, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. The way that that language gets changed there is puzzling. All mine are yours and yours are mine becomes all I have is yours and all you have is mine. What does Jesus have? Versus all of my followers belong to you, God, and all of your followers belong to me. Maybe this is my universalism showing. I don't know. Maybe this is me wanting more and more and more people to open their ears to the message of the gospel, that I want more and more people to be welcomed into the faith, to allow what I think largely are minor theological or uh, doctrine-based disagreements uh, to be set aside. I want those disagreements and those theological issues to be set aside and for more people to feel as though they can too be part of the 
family of Christ because the sacrifice that he made was for all so that all sins can be forgiven and that we don't have to kill the sheep anymore. We don't have to kill the goats anymore. We don't have to do these animal sacrifices, these earthly animal sacrifices. A heavenly being was sacrificed in their place. And he opened the doors. He allowed for a level of connection with God by coming down to earth and living as a human amongst us. He allowed for a new connection for human beings to make with God that has never been before that point allowed. It's Jesus. It's thanks to Jesus that all of this is possible, that we can connect with God directly in prayer in a way that we couldn't ever do before, that the hierarchies and the walls are torn down, which isn't to say that we don't want beautiful, big cathedrals. This isn't to say that some folks shouldn't be more equipped to facilitate worship services or facilitate prayer or confession. I think that there's absolutely grounds to say that, but Jesus's message at no point, even the book of John, the gospel of John, which is widely seen from what I understand to be, Jesus is strict in this book. He's, he's kind of a toughie in this book. Even in this book, it seems as though the door is still open. That's a bit of a tangent. I don't mean to get too far off base, but I've been thinking a lot lately about evangelizing. I've been thinking a lot about sharing my faith with people and doing so in a way that encourages people to open their hearts to Christianity. Or at the very least, to open their minds to the idea that God exists, that God is real. Sometimes the traditional language of evangelizing, the traditional language of reaching out to the public in order to spread the gospel, in order to let people know that they are loved and they are forgiven, sometimes that language is more divisive and unhelpful in our time now, in our time today. And sure, we should necessarily not, not always be concerned with what the world thinks of how we express our faith. Absolutely. There are irreconcilable things in the Bible. There are things that cannot be reconciled to the way that people live today. But ultimately, I think that anyone who is interested in sharing their faith with people shouldn't be approaching it from a perspective of superiority. At no point in the, in, the, in the ministry of Jesus does he ever say, go out and tell everybody that you're better than them. Go out and tell everybody how much better you are than them. Absolutely not. Jesus is humble. He's humbled by his mere existence on earth. He has to take on one of these awful bodies that we all have to carry around all the time. I know we're made in the image of God. But how many of us have ever felt like this thing is falling apart? This meat sack that I have is falling apart. I'm sure most of us at some point of our lives have, have thought, I, I want to be liberated from this physical form in some way. And, and maybe that's by way of going to heaven or transcending, opening up a new dimension of thought in your head or something. I was never very good at uh, that kind of meditation. But Jesus was humbled by his mere existence here on earth. And even though at this point he is the high priest of high priests, he is praying for others. He's interceding for others, which is just like him. He never approached his ministry um, by saying, listen here, uh, you disgusting people. Listen here, you lost idiots. His language is kind of rough at certain points. It's kind of funny too at certain points. You got to understand this is, some folks have robbed the Bible of its ability to be funny. And I think it's it's sad because there's, there's, there's funny stuff in here. Uh, and, and the way that 
Jesus interacts with people at times is quite funny. But in our mission to share the faith of uh, the faith of Christianity, our faith in Jesus and and the gospel, we cannot approach others from a perspective that says we are chosen, you are sick, you are lost, you are faithless, and as such, you can come to us, repent, come to us, and join us, or rot in hell. I don't see who that helps. I don't see who that gets on board. There have been some preachers, Finney, among others, that have been really good at scaring the daylights out of people, that have been really good at scaring the hell, quite literally, scaring the hell out of people. But for most people, if they get talked to that way, they'll turn around and walk away. They want nothing to do with that sort of preaching. They want nothing to do with that sort of evangelizing. It's so much easier in sharing the gospel to tell people about the sacrifice that Jesus made, to tell people about this mission that Jesus was sent down from heaven to accomplish. So Jesus says, And verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Jesus is glorified in us by our existence, by our persisting faith, by us allowing the forgiveness of our sins, by us allowing ourselves to embrace the gospel, sharing it by us trying not to sin. And of course we will. Of course we're going to sin. There isn't a day that goes by where we don't do something that separates us from God. The sin separates us from God. But in us, in our soul, in our spirit, in our heart, Jesus is there. And in that, he is glorified. Even to to this day, And in verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And here it is. (laughs) Here's the language. Verse 11, again, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. They, the believers, the people, may be one, united, harmonious, just as Jesus and God are one, with the Holy Spirit, of course. Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. I believe he's referring to Judas there, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your world. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you will keep them from the evil one. The footnote here says, keep them from evil. I prefer to go with the latter. Um, This anthropomorphized, goat-footed, goat-horned, human-bodied Satan thing has gone too far, I think, in our society. I think it's it's like a really ugly image uh, and one that is in no way accurate. Uh, it is as accurate of a portrayal of evil as uh, the like cherub smiling baby with wings is of an angel. Because if we read scripture, we know that that's not, that is not what angels look like. So keep them from evil. So in this particular part of the prayer, most people tend to interpret it as Jesus praying strictly for the apostles. I don't think that there's much in the Bible indicating that Jesus did anything strictly. 
he was an open book emotionally, and he let people know what he thought. But there was nothing one-dimensional about anything that he did. There was a layer of knowledge below everything that he did and everything that he said that we may never really uncover. We may never really understand. But again, Jesus is separating faith, the love of God, the worship of God, the growth of the church. He is separating from the world. They are not of the world. They have to be here. We're not of the world. This is not our permanent resting place. God willing. This isn't where we're going to be forever. But we must be here. I don't think it's wise to compare ourselves to Jesus in any way, other than the fact that he was human. But we have a mission ourselves. Of course, thankfully, that mission doesn't involve for most of us being tortured and killed in public. I'm not sure why that being in public is worse, but somehow it just feels worse, doesn't it? But we all have a mission. We've all been given a commission. We've all been told that in being a believer, in being a follower of Christ, we must share. Share in the delight, share in the love, in the forgiveness, and the humility. We must share. Become one. In verse 16, he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, theologically, this is getting complicated, right? Because the word that God gave Jesus to bring to earth has been embraced by the apostles, has been embraced by Jesus' followers. We are sanctified in the truth, which is the word. And here's where it gets complicated. We have to back up. Because the word is also used as a phrase to describe Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John. It's in the very, very first verses of the book. I'm going to be discussing this next week with someone I'm really excited to talk uh, about the Bible with, so I won't go too far into that. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Sanctify them in Jesus Christ. Your word is Jesus Christ. You have sent me into the world, and I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And the word is truth. And here's where it turns again, because again in this prayer, most interpret up until the end of verse 19, Jesus is simply praying for those around the table with him. Then he turns and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, their word being the word that the apostles spread out into the world. So Jesus is not only asking for God to sanctify the apostles themselves, but to sanctify all of those who may come to Jesus through the preaching of the apostles. And of course, this has to, by way of uh, you know time passing and people dying, carry on and on and on and on. That they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He is not simply asking that the apostles be one and maintain harmony amongst them, but that all of those who believe in Jesus and worship God through Jesus can also be one. One, not 800, one. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even we, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's hard to believe, right? 
how could it be that God loves us like he loves Jesus? Jesus is a part of God, the Father. Jesus came directly from God. Well, let's go back to Genesis. <laughs> We're made in his image. We are sons and daughters of Christ too. We are sons and daughters of God too. So we must be one amongst ourselves, just as when Jesus is in heaven, enjoying you know the palatial estate, enjoying the chill vibes and the atmosphere of heaven, going, this is so much better than earth. Earth was harsh. Didn't dig it. Not a big fan. That Jesus and God are one in, in that place too. And he turns at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, these being the apostles and his followers and those who will follow his followers and so on and so forth. Righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. The world does not know you. This discussion of the world as kind of this autonomous area, this um, this cloud of thought that is entirely and completely separated from God, I understand kind of more to be mortality. Mortality in like all of its trappings, right? The physics, the physical aspects of sin, the physical aspects of violence, the physical aspects of that which is entirely and only existing in the realm of humanity on earth or in the realm of animals on earth, I should say. So we are in the world, but not of the world. And in accepting that Jesus loves us, that Jesus died for us, and that through his death we can be forgiven, allows us to transcend all of the garbage. It doesn't mean that we don't have to see it. It doesn't mean that we don't have to live through it, that we're not going to experience it. But that allows us to overcome it. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that in my day-to-day -day life, when I get so frustrated with the state of politics and with the state of humanity, with the state of my work or various social situations that I'm in, prayer takes me out of it. Connecting with God takes me out of it. Reading scripture takes me out of it. It doesn't matter how frustrated and how angry I get. It doesn't matter how sad I get. All that matters is that I'm connecting with God, that I'm connecting with something that's outside of this world. And I don't mean out of this world. I mean outside of this world that's not beholden to rules that are often unfair, to injustices that affect people in oppressive or awful ways. That is the world. Whatever ism it is that affects you, that is the world. Because Jesus is the truth. Jesus is what takes us out of that. I might be zooming out a little bit too much. But I know that life is frustrating for a lot of people right now. I know that um, between the daily grind that more and more of us are having to return to as the pandemic kind of seems to be disappearing from public thought. The frustrations of having to return to normal in a world that was never normal to begin with. A normal that should have never been, uh, should have never been gotten to, we are now returning to as though this is a good thing. Let's get back to the way it was three years ago. Who on earth is thinking that? 
but my comfort comes from God. And it comes from prayer. So reading Jesus praying really helps me with that because it helps me to see not only how I should be praying, which is with humility, um, not (laughs) desperation, although praying in desperation is necessary at times, that should not be the only time that you pray. Jesus is about to get killed and he doesn't even seem desperate, does he? He's kind of at peace. He's kind of zenned out here. In verse 26, Jesus said, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So we have an opportunity to be possessed by Jesus. (laughs) Might not be the right word. Might not be exactly the right word, but the love that God has for Jesus, for his son, for himself, that that love may be within us and that Jesus too, in all of his humility, in all of his forgiveness, in all of his wisdom, can also be within us. What a beautiful thing to pray for. I don't know if I've ever been that gracious in my prayer. I pray for people all the time. I pray for my friends every day. Some friends of mine are going through some really, really tough things. And and uh, as much as, you know, I can say, oh, woe is me, I, I have problems too. There are some really awful, really terrible things going on in the world. And, and, um, and I want to pray for them. But no prayer that I say will ever be as effective as what Jesus is doing here. It's only through his prayer in this that says that the love that God has for him may be in us, that Jesus may be in us, that equips us to help others in the way that he helped. The headers are very different in the NIV too. I should I should go back and mention that because the last, I'll read from 24 through 26 in the NIV. And it says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus goes on after this to pray. He goes goes to Gethsemane and he prays again. Timeline of that is a little confusing. So after Jesus concludes his prayer, if we stitch together the Gospels, it appears as though then he goes to pray alone. And I talked about Jesus praying in Gethsemane in a previous episode. But it is fitting that Jesus prays without ceasing. It's fitting that Jesus then, after praying for others, goes on to pray in private before being arrested and that he knew all of this was happening. None of this was a surprise to him. None of it was something that he hadn't been preparing for for his entire life. He was the Lamb of God. He knew he was the Lamb of God. What do lambs do? Before Jesus, lambs were killed. They were eaten where they were sacrificed. And so even in his time of knowing that his death was imminent, that his sacrifice was coming up, he turns to God and prays for us. Prays for his apostles and he prays for us. I think it's incredible. This uh, this sort of uh, solo episode was a little more long-winded than I think other ones that I've done. And I might have gone on a, f- a few more tangents than I normally do. And I apologize if it, if it seemed a little loose. 
but primarily what I was focused on today was how do we pray? If we see how Jesus prays, how do we pray? It's easy to say, well, that's Jesus. Jesus prays how Jesus prays. Uh, That's Jesus. We're not Jesus. But even in that prayer, we see Jesus is saying that praying to God that he be in us, that he is in us. He's a part of us through the Holy Spirit. He is a part of us. That we, like him, have the ability to intercede for others. We, like him, have the ability to pray for others, provided that we suffer like he did, provided that we are humble like he was, that we give ourselves to others in the way that he did. This is not a small task. This is not something that's easy to do. This sets aside the issue of sin inherently because sin is unavoidable, that only one human ever lived a perfect sinless life, and that was Jesus. What it highlights is that we, too, as followers, are commissioned to love others. If the truth is in us, if the word is in us, if Jesus is in us, then we should live like it. We should reflect that. This was probably less of an academic study this time around. I've been particularly focused on on these issues, and so I'm looking forward to maybe being a little more even-handed and a little more academic when I discuss John 1 with my guest next week. But I appreciate everybody who listens, and I don't take the time to say this during the show enough, but I really cannot say how, from the bottom of my heart, how flattered I am that folks are reaching out to me and saying that this show has helped them in some way or has um, allowed them to feel comfortable to come back to reading scripture again. I will never, ever take credit for that sort of turn in someone's life because that's God. All he wants to do is be nearer to us. All God wants to do is be close to us. That can feel really hard to believe when our lives are falling apart. It can feel really, really hard to believe when it all seems like that's happening is disaster after disaster after tragedy after tragedy, personal or otherwise. This is why I can't particularly subscribe to this notion that every single thing is part of a plan. But your suffering does not preclude God's existence. Your suffering does not mean that there isn't a God that loves you. And I I just thank you all so much for allowing me to invade your ears with my weirdness for, I don't know, an hour every week. So I have a little bit of an odd choice for my poem this week. Uh, it's not really a poem at all, although some some would argue that this particular work is entirely a poem. It's just a very weird poem. Uh, the Cloud of Unknowing was a 14th century Christian mystic text about engaging in contemplation and connection with God and all kinds of all kinds of direction and description and how it is that we can come closer to God. The very last chapter of the cloud of unknowing has this to say about pride and doubt. When the feeling of grace is withdrawn, pride is invariably the cause. Not always pride that exists, but pride that would develop if the feeling of grace were not withdrawn. Thus, some young fools frequently suppose that God is their enemy when he is completely their friend. Sometimes it is withdrawn because of their carelessness, 
and when this happens, they soon afterwards feel a most bitter pain that scourges them very hard. Sometimes our Lord will delay it in accordance with a plan, because by the delay, he wishes to make it grow and be held in greater esteem. When what had long been lost is newly found and felt once more. This is one of the most supreme and reliable signs by which a soul may know whether or not he is called to undertake this work. If such a delay and lengthy, such a lengthy absence of this activity he feels, when it comes suddenly as it does, without the help of any intermediary, then that he then has a more burning desire and a greater love, longing to undertake this activity than he ever had before so much so that I believe he often has greater joy in finding it than he ever had sorrow in losing it. If this is so, it is surely a true and unquestionable sign that he is called by God to undertake this activity, whatever he may be or may have been. Thanks, everybody. Well, it's been said before and you can say it again and I Must know you love me, there must be no doubt